You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. How does the ACT NOW study help healthcare providers diagnose and treat prediabetes? Joining us to discuss the very important topic of prevention and treatment of prediabetes is clinical professor of medicine at the Veteran Affairs Medical Center and the University of California San Diego School of Medicine in San Diego, California, Dr. Sundar Medallier. Dr. Medallier, welcome to ReachMD. Oh, thank you, Dr. Edelman, and uh, good day to all our listeners. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Um, this is this is probably one of our most important topics. You know, let's just open up with a general uh, thoughts about the incidence and prevalence of prediabetes. Just a couple of months ago, uh, in January 2011, actually, the American Diabetes Association released the National Diabetes Fact Sheet, which actually estimates the prevalence of prediabetes in the United States at about 79 million people. That's about one-third of the adult population in the United States. How do we define prediabetes now? So as of now, there are three ways in which you can diagnose uh, prediabetes. The first is if you do a fasting blood glucose, and that's in the morning after an eight-hour fast. Uh, If the blood sugar is between 100 and 125 milligrams per deciliter, that's considered prediabetes. As you know, 126 and above is diabetes. Uh, The gold standard still is Two hours after drinking 75 grams of glucose, that's the OGTT, and if the blood sugar at that point, two hours, is between 140 and 199, that's considered prediabetes. 200 and above, of course, is diabetes. And uh, since last year, of course, we have the hemoglobin A1C, and that, if it is between 5.7 and 6.4, that's considered prediabetes. Now, let's talk about the Act Now study um, that was recently published in New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, you and I both know it's, it was going on for many years, and I think some of the results sort of uh, solidify and confirm some of the prior uh, prevention trials. So this was uh, a study with 600 participants, and it was the classic randomized double-blind placebo-controlled uh, study. What we did was... Uh, screened a, a, a bunch of people who had prediabetes as defined by the gold standard, the oral glucose tolerance test, and the two-hour blood glucose was between 140 and 199. But in addition, they also had to have a high fasting glucose, and we define that as between 90 to 125. Now, remember, impaired fasting glucose or prediabetes by fasting glucose alone is 100 to 125, but we thought we'd broaden it a little bit, and we took people with a fasting of 90 to 125 on fasting glucose, but their two-hour glucose had to be between 140 and 199. At that time, we did not have the A1C criteria for diagnosis of prediabetes. So these people were taken. They were given standard lifestyle advice, which we usually do in the clinic, you know, giving them a sheet or referring them to the dietitian. And then they were randomized to receive either 
pioglitazone for one month at 30 milligrams, and then after that, if they could tolerate it, well, it went up to 45 milligrams a day, and the other group got a matching placebo. And we followed them up. Uh, we had a fixed number of, uh, we had done the power calculations, it was about, say, 600, and we had to follow them for about two and a half years. And uh, once, the, you know, people had been studied for a median of about 2.4 years, the study was uh, completed, and uh, the results of the study, of course, as you know, showed that pioglitazone had quite a powerful effect in preventing the progression to diabetes, and it did that by 72%. What was the baseline A1C at the beginning that may help our listeners, uh, you know, equate some of their patients when they're just getting the A1C? The uh, A1C in these people was 5.5. Remember, at that time, we did not have the A1C criteria. Right, and 5.5, and that's using an assay where uh, 6 is the upper limit of normal? Correct. Yeah, so they're they're getting in the upper part of the normal range, and with our criteria, that Uh, would... We have to be... uh, I just wanted to make a small uh, correction there. Uh, 5.7 to 6.4 is pre-diabetes, so the normal range up to 6 is kind of a moot point over there. Yeah, yeah, and well, it makes it makes you wonder about uh, is five point seven too high? But nonetheless, um, what were some of the side effects in this study using pioglitazone? Okay, the two main things which stood out was weight gain and edema. That was the two main things which stood out. Uh, the people in the pioglitazone group over this median of two point four years put on. 3.9 kilos. That's about nine pounds over the two and a half years of the study. And what was their baseline weights under? Uh, the baseline weight was around 94 kilos. That's about uh, 200 pounds. So they they started off at 200. They um, they about ended up pounds. on average. Yeah. And how much did the placebo gain? Yeah, the placebo gained 0.77 kilos. That's about a pound and a half. Just real quickly, what percent had edema? It occurred in 12.9% of people in the pioglitazone group versus 6.4% in the placebo group, and or twice as many in the pio group. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend and long-term colleague, Dr. Sundar Mudalier. We are discussing the prevention and treatment of prediabetes. Well, Sunder, you know, you and I have been involved in so many prevention trials, um, and I'd say the most famous is the government-funded diabetes prevention program. Give our listeners an idea of of how this data uh, compares to the study that we did at the DPP. Yeah, uh, the diabetes prevention program, as you said, of which both you and I were part of, that was a much larger study. Compared to 600 patients in this study, in that study we actually had 4,000 patients. And that study, which was published in 2003, clearly showed that if people followed intensive diet and lifestyle, that reduced the prevent progression to diabetes by 58%. And in that study... There was also metformin at 850 milligrams twice a day, and that prevented the progression to diabetes by 31%. What are the current recommendations now for screening patients for prediabetes? The American Diabetes Association says that testing should be considered in all adults who are overweight, that is, those who have a BMI more than 25 kilograms per meter square, and have additional risk factors like they're sedentary, they have first-degree relative with diabetes, they belong to a high-risk ethnic group like African Americans, Latinos, Pacific Islanders, Asian Americans, women who delivered a baby 
weighing more than nine pounds or had gestational diabetes, those with hypertension, dyslipidemia, women with polycystic ovary disease, and uh, those who have a history of coronary artery disease. If they don't have all these risk factors, then at the age of 45, you should screen people and screen it every three years. But if they have any of these risk factors and if it's normal, you should screen every year. That's a pretty uh, long list of fairly common uh, abnormalities when you add in being overweight, hypertensive, dyslipidemic. Well, what are the recommendations uh, to our healthcare providers in terms of treating these folks? So if people have prediabetes, either they have a high fasting glucose or they had an OGTT and that was, uh, you know, between 140 and 199, or they had an A1C between 5.7 to 6.4. Now, all these people should and must be given lifestyle uh, advice to lose about at least 5 to 10% of their body weight and do about 30 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity at least five times a week. In addition, those who have both fasting IFG and IGT. Now, that's the current guideline. So they have to have a high fasting and a high 2-hour glucose. And in addition, if they're more than 60 years of age, their BMI is more than 35, they have a first-degree relative with diabetes, they have high triglycerides, low HDL, hypertension, and their A1C is above 6%. Those people, in addition to lifestyle, it is recommended, at least based on the diabetes prevention program, that they be put on metformin, specifically 850 milligrams BID, that being the dose that was studied in the diabetes prevention program. What One thing I wanted to ask you is that we have the DREAM trial that looked at ROSI with a very potent reduction in conversion, the ACT NOW with PIO even more potent, uh, and even the, the old TZD troglitazone in the uh, early stages of the DPP showed a really nice prevention. Why aren't we recommending TZDs in this early stage? And that's, that's the most effective drug. Yes, that's an extremely good question because, as you know, with anything, there's a risk and there's a benefit ratio. Now, metformin's been around for more than 50 years, and we pretty much know, you know, all that there is to it. And it's a reasonably well-tolerated drug. Not, not really many side effects except, you know, some GI disturbances when you begin with. And, of course, it shouldn't be used in people with renal dysfunction, creatinine more than 1.5 in men, 1.4 in women. Otherwise, it's about as safe as you can get and the risk-benefit kind of uh, uh, balance each other out. That thing with not using glitazones more extensively, I think, would be the weight gain part of it. Not so much the edema, but the weight gain. You know, even putting on nine pounds in a 200-pound person, any form of weight gain would, you know, be unwelcome. And it's a little, it's a little bit of a paradox that, you know, weight gain is a risk factor for diabetes. And here's a drug that makes you put on a little weight, but you still get gain much more benefits. And it's uh, relating to the so-called good fat versus the bad fat that is put on. Yeah, you've been fact, listening. If you uh, do a sub-analysis of the studies, people who were, who were more overweight and who had bigger waist, they benefited much more from the drug than the people who are less overweight. Yeah, but I, I would say, you know, as we come to the end of the show, I think you and I would both agree that, you know, the listeners really need to be more aggressive in picking up diabetes at an earlier stage. Lifestyle is a must, and that, that takes resources, like getting a good dietitian and maybe a CDE and even an exercise physiologist. And I would, I would strongly urge the folks to consider drug therapy once they talk to the patient. Uh, even the 
ADA consensus conference they had on treating prediabetes did mention that you can use other drugs than metformin if they're safe, effective, you know, and cost-effective. That's correct, yeah. So it's a risk-benefit. It's an individual patient decision. But by far and away, you know, we should screen early, pick people out early, and give them diet and lifestyle advice. Well said, my friend. I'd like to thank our guest, clinical professor of medicine at the VA Medical Center and University of California, San Diego School of Medicine in San Diego, California, Dr. Sunder Medallier. Dr. Medallier, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you, Dr. Edelman. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.